Everybody hear me okay? I'm sorry, I had my volume up. Haven't we had a great time so far? My goodness sakes, what a fun to get together with a fellowship and fellowship. That's what's two fellows in the same ship. It's wonderful to do that. And I loved your talk this evening. Where did Brother Ken... No, I don't need you, Kate. I need one to just introduce me. Oh, Fred... Uh-huh. See why he'd run out. I'll leave him alone for now. I'll get him later on. I want to thank those in the sound booth. You sure surprised me. I didn't know I was being broadcast halfway around the world. I got a phone call from Sacramento today from my sister-in-law saying she watched the whole service and listened to me preach. I got a call from my wife said to watch the whole service and I didn't do too well, she said. <laughs> so, hi, Shirley, and hi, everybody. I'm glad you're watching. I'll try to be more cautious with my words since you're listening in, and you're such purists that you don't go to church anymore. Uh, I'll just be kind here. Well, we've learned some good things. We learned from Pastor Merrill. I didn't know that. He showed us the mystery of the female mind. That what they say isn't exactly what they mean until they say it again. And I've been running that one through my mind for a long time. I just didn't have a way of putting it. And what a masterful job you did this day. And I, I mean that. I mean that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So uh, thank, thank you for those, Shepard. And then, Pastor Ken, the beautiful job of laying out the pattern of God, so simple, so plain, and so available, that all the world, we, the world we live in changes and alters this whole world and philosophy, the Word of God stands true and will be here just as it is now, forever and ever. Thank you for that beautiful word. So we had a good time last night, or the last time I spoke, I guess it was still night, we talked about temptation. And we could have closed that one with a word out of Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. Because we learn the temptation, every man is tempted, drawn away of his own luck. But we don't have to be destroyed because of our own appetites. Our God is faithful to us, and he's only faithful because he loves you. I don't know, looking at you, why he loves you like he does. But don't feel bad about that insult. I look in the mirror and ask the same question. He loves us with an undying love. And because he loves us so much, he suggests restrictions. And as long as we do those restrictions, we have the flow of God. And as we learned through Pastor Ken this morning, if we don't do what God has offered us, we're the losers, not God. He just moves on with his program. You're the one that gets left out. Now you forgot. If you don't say amen, I go back and I repeat the same thing over and over again. So it's not, you're not going to hinder the kingdom of God by being stubborn and running your own way. You're only going to hinder yourself. The kingdom of God will move right on. 
It's kind of, it's not exactly right, but it's kind of like in the sports today. If somebody gets out there who's carrying the ball and isn't doing the job, they don't quit the game. They remove the guy out of the game and put somebody else in to fill his place. And you didn't get the reward because you didn't keep it up. So keep it up. Keep it going. Stay in the game. Now, amen will cover me out of that. So that's where we've been, and we've enjoyed it and learned it so beautifully. Tonight, we want to move again into the life of Jesus Christ briefly. And I'm taking six chapters out of the book of Matthew, probably 16, 17, 18. And you can read them when you get home. It's a whole story that carries this one nugget of truth. Jesus came different than any other prophet or priest, because he was different than any prophet or priest. He's the son of God. But he fills the role of the prophet. He fills the role of the priest. He fills it all. And, and it's well spoken in the book of Matthew. It says kind of like this. After six days, Jesus took his disciples into a very high mountain. And when he got there, he was transfigured before them. And there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah and Jesus stood there, and they were talking together. Now, that kind of eliminates, boy, they're gone. Once they're dead, they're gone. These weren't gone because they still could talk to Jesus. But he talks with them, and they are listening. And Pete, who's the big mouth in the whole bunch, he says, this is good. Let's stay right here and put some tents up. Well, we call them tabernacles. And let's, let's worship here. One for Elijah, one for Moses. Well, it goes the other way. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And all of a sudden, a cloud comes out of heaven, falls down over the whole scene, and God the Father moves in on the picture. And about that time, things begin to happen. There's a brightening light that comes and shines not on, but from Jesus Christ himself. His radiance, his countenance, is reflected out of the presence of God. You can pick that up two or three times, 17th of John. Father, mine hour has come. Restore to me the glory that I had with you from the foundation of the earth. You can take it to the book of Revelation and say, and he appeared before them and his eyes were as fire. Da, 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 da. There is a radiance that came out of Jesus Christ that was astounding to the disciples at that time. And they look at them and they said, this is good. Let's stay right here. But then it got too big for them, and the dust creatures went back to the dust, and they laid down on the ground and said, this is too hard for me. And a voice spoke out of heaven, and I like this one, It said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And they looked and they saw no man save Jesus Christ. Oh, for you dispensationalists, that's an exciting one, isn't it? Out of the law, into the prophets, and into the period of grace, all of it tied up in one mountain experience. But it happened just exactly that. Now, that's not my message, but that's my introduction to a simple thought. In these last chapters of Matthew, and I also copied Luke and John, we find that Jesus' ministry is not just looked at, it is now passed on to others. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, Simon Barjona, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter has received a revelation. The chicken lover has received a revelation from God. Flesh and blood have not revealed. And I say unto you, thy name is and it shall be, and he now transfers who he was into who he's going to be in a moment of time. Why? To make him feel good? No, to pick up the responsibility and the ministry that Jesus is going to lay down. 
He is the greatest example we have in Scripture. Now we've got Elijah with Elisha. We've got Moses with, oh, help me, Joshua. We got all the, we got all the tie them across. But when it comes to Jesus, he ties his ministry to all those who believe in him. And he authorizes them and empowers them to go and do what he has done in the world. Now, it's an awfully wonderful thing to be able to do like we heard from our speaker earlier this evening when he said, Jesus is in the boat asleep. I like that one. Go home and preach it. Is your boat so comfortable that Jesus feels at home enough to sleep in it? Or was this Jesus' plan to create the first submarine? It was supposed to go down, and because he was in it, it would come up on the shore, because he was headed for Gadaria, and he would have got there, because he said, we're going to the other side. Well, think about it. But your ship is in trouble, and Jesus rises up and says, oh, ye of little faith, I'm here. And there's to pass on to them the hope that no matter where they go or what they do, Jesus is going to be right in the middle of that boat all the time. Somebody give me a lay amen, let me get off of that. We need to recognize that. Incidentally, here's a group of sermons for you, for you preachers that preach. Take the fish stories that Jesus was involved in. They came down to their nets, they're fixing them up. Jesus said, let me get on your boat, Peter. Peter says, fine. He says, shove out away from the shore. They went out a little way from the shore, throw down the net, and here come the fish swarming in. Now, why did they come? Because of one little statement, I have fished all night, nevertheless, at your word. And when he said, at your word, here's what happened. Jesus had said, fish, get in the net. And from the depths of the water, here came the fish, crowding this whole fishing expedition. And they come piling in, and the big ones were in it, not just the little ones. And they even count them. This is fisherman's paradise when the word of God came. Uh Uh-oh, you didn't hear it. If you can get Jesus in your boat, in your activities, he will bless you beyond anything you can imagine. And Okay, so the... Oh, no, no, no. Preach that whole bunch of them. There are four C stories. They're all put together. And each of them presents Jesus Christ in another way. Now, tonight, we're going to take one more step. Back up to where I was. Those are the review of where we've been. We are talking about the temptations... We didn't just deal with temptation. We dealt with how to deal with temptation. When do we deal with it? The moment we recognize that this is not progressive for us or good for us, that's when we deal with it. How do we deal with it? We return to the cross where we started in the first place, and we lay that temptation before the Lord, and we say, it's done. And I did it again. And in your speaking it, the word that you speak out of your mouth finishes it at that point. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, it's a confession of your faith. Sometimes we need to stand in front of a mirror and confess our faith before God in the front of a mirror and tell ourselves, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And devil, if you don't like it, get out of my rear view mirror. I'm going to serve God. And remember, the devil's never in your windshield. He's always in your rear view mirror. That didn't go over very big. I wish I'd saved that for a message, because that's pretty good stuff. So we deal with it. 
The picture I want to show you tonight is that Jesus sets an example and then says, follow me. I came into this world. You've sent me, Father, all that thou hast given me. I have kept save one, the son of perdition. The scripture might be fulfilled. Thine they were, and you gave them me. Now, Father, I come to you. However, I am leaving them here with the authority that I had from you. I now give it to them. They are in this world. Keep them from the evil. Watch out, you're not going to like my next statement, but I didn't say it, I'm repeating it. Father, I pray not for the world. Come on. It's about time you stop worrying about what's happening in the world and start reaching out for the souls that Jesus Christ has really given. But what is the government going to do? Which government? How many times do you want to go around the world? How many countries? Stop letting that be the burden of your heart and dare to say, I've got a neighbor that's going to hell unless I reach out and touch them. And let the burden be, I pray for these that thou hast given me. Thine they were and you gave them to me. And now, Father, keep them. The man that's going to be crucified upside down is going to be there. The man that's going to be stoned is there. Keep them. Keeping of your physical body is simple compared to keeping your spiritual man that you can be an example for what Jesus Christ died for, and that was you. That's an amen spot. Amen. Recognize that then that he has prayed for us. Father, keep them. I have prayed for them. And now I come to you, and I'm going to leave them here. Now that is one of the greatest examples that we can follow and one of the hardest things that we as preachers have to do and that is have a successful or semi-successful ministry and then release it to somebody else to take that ministry a step farther than we have. It's hard to release who we are. You say, well, I don't believe that. When you turn 85, you will believe that. It is difficult to sit down and say, let the message be preached, but I'm not the only one that can preach it. I'll give it to somebody else. We need to learn to transfer. I call it passing the baton. Not quitting on the job, but passing the baton, saying, here, you're younger than I am. You run for a while, but you stay on the same track. And you come around and report once in a while. As you come by, I'll slap you on the butt as you go, and I'll say, you're doing good, kid. Keep on going. God wants us to learn to transfer what he's given to us because it doesn't die as long as we don't hog it. Amen. Uh, come on, amen. We learned it already. Amen, amen. Let's do it twice. Amen. Amen. That's a truth that you can go with. God wants you to enjoy all that he's given, but don't hoard it. It's not yours. It's him in you, God in you, the hope of glory. And it's him that we exalt. So let's take an example. Here's the story time. You know I'm a storyteller, and if you don't like stories, this is time for you to get up and go to the bathroom, get a cup of coffee, come back later for the altar call. I was raised by a preacher. He wasn't always a preacher. I'm going to take five minutes to run his history, and you don't want to, but I need it to, for a later reference. He was born in Kentucky. He was born to a brethren pastor. <laughs> brethren pastor was married to a mouthy woman named Mary. They were fighting all the time and decided to get a divorce. The brethren church kicked him out. And the Pentecostal church took him in. That's still going on today. 
And he began to speak in tongues and shout. Now, Grandpa, he was a shouter and a dancer, and he had big feet. And he liked to put his big feet up on the pulpit when he was preaching. He'd stand there and preach, and I remember him well, because I stayed two summers with him. What a grandpa he was. But that was my dad's dad. He and Mary got divorced. And now dad, who is just 17, actually he's 15, at 15 years of age, is without a mother and with a younger brother who is an arrogant so-and-so, and a dad who is very powerful, and you will do it this way, and in Kentucky, they had a little farm. Well, it's really a little sawmill. Now, I don't know if this word makes sense up here. I don't know your background. But they were jippo mail, uh, jippo mills. Jippo is mean you're not a company. You go out and get your own logs. You, you make your own sales. And you make your own cuts, everything. So they were jippo and had their own little sawmill in Kentucky. Now, a few years ago, I had the privilege of looking up that land and finding the old sawmill. I found a few relics that I even still have in my office today from way back there. And I appreciate the history of it. Well, they came and they moved to Oregon. And in Oregon, they moved to an area called Coos Bay and then down into Coquille. And in Coquille, they bought a little piece of land that was adjacent to the Coquille River. And on the Coquille River, they would go out and they would throw ropes across floating logs and pull them in by hand. Pull them up on the shore with a little old tractor that they had and cut them up into lumber and became the Cornwell Sawmill. I know I said Cornwell. That's the name they went with, Cornwell. And we were Cornwells until Mother got a hold of the thing and changed it around and said, I don't want to be a Cornwell, but I'll be a Cornwall. So we changed it to Cornwall. So all of them that were born after that time were Cornwalls, and my name was transferred back, and I was born a Cornwell, and I live a Cornwall, blah, blah. What difference does it make? One of the best names I ran under was Hey You. And I knew who we were talking about. So we as Cornwallwalls are now in the Coquille City. And things are growing. And they make good money. Now we got Espy, E-S-P-I, was my dad's name, Espy James. They have Espy and Grandpa and Virgil, the three of them running a sawmill. They make good money, so they buy a car, an older car, new then. And my dad gets desiring not to be there anymore. He heard of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in San Jose, California. Amy Simple McPherson was a member of that church, and Daddy Farmark was the pastor. And it, is this boring to you? No. Well, get that boring look off of your face. You know? <laughs> now, I, I, I'll tell you, this is history. I wasn't there yet. See, I'm not born yet. I'm back there in the twinkle in my dad's eye, way yet. So, they, 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 he goes, decides he'd like to go to San Jose and go to that church. And he does. And the agreement was, he would take the car, and if he didn't come back in three months, then he would own the car, and Grandpa would own the sawmill. And he went off. He got there and he ran across a young lady by the name of, uh, and on it goes, the Lamb Sisters. And they fell for Beulah Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? That's like Beulah Lamb. Oh, Beulah Lamb. So he fell for Beulah Lamb. And they're just too young to really get married. So they have to wait one more year and finally get permission to get married. And Epp marries Beulah, 
And Verna Cornwall, who was the sister, comes and plays the music, and on it goes. And Daddy Farmark did it. And Amy Simone person was there. And several other important people were there. And they had a revival in San Jose in those days. I mean, fire came down, and they were having a great time. Now, my dad was not going to be satisfied with just being married and having fun. So now he's going to have children. And in the next short period of time, he has a son who dies. Then he has another son whose name is Judson. Now, it takes a couple of years, you know that. His name is Judson, and he's the oldest. And another couple of years, they had another son. His name was Robert. He's really the important one of the whole bunch. <laughs> his name is Robert. And then they're not happy, so they waited three years, and they have Averna, a girl. Now, that was a mistake. No, that wasn't a mistake. That's a wonderful thing. So she being five years after I was, and now they are happy in the ministry. In the ministry with Judson, Robert, Iverna, they moved to Ukiah, California to take a small little mission church, and Tom is born. And then they move from there, they go to Bandon, Oregon, and another one is born, Jim. Now we've got the Cornwall tribe. All of that to say this, at that time we would think some time has gone on, but dad is just 34 years old. All the history I've given to you happened in the young life of those days, where we married young and got old fast. So dad now in Bandon, Oregon, just 34 years of age, five kids, not enough money in the church to support him, so he works in the sawmill, and we all work wherever we can, from paper routes up and down, and we work. We didn't know what it meant to take money home. But I've got to tell a story here. Are you bored yet? No. Good, because I was going to tell the story anyway. I came home with the first dime that I'd ever earned, and I'm flipping it. And my dad reached out while I'm flipping it, and it disappeared in his hand. Now, I know that he's not going to steal it from me, but I know I'm not going to get it without a fight. And so I attack, and now he's trying to hold me, and I'm trying to get his hand open to get the dime out. I'm going to fail, but he knows that, and I know it, but we still do it. Finally, he opens his hand. He says, now, wait a minute. Let me show you something. That is not 10 cents to you. That's 9 cents. One penny of that goes to God in the offering. My first dime was to be tithed on. And I said, okay, how do I do that? And he reaches in his pocket, and he takes out one of those little pocket purses that he used to all care. You squeeze it, and it opens up, you know, like a star. And he counted out five pennies and a nickel. He says, put the dime in there. I said, put the money in my hand first. <laughs> and we traded in a hurry. Now, you've got to know that this is the kind of relationship I had with my dad. I would trust him with my life. But we played games back and forth all the time. He's my buddy. So I take the money and I count them again. And I said, now, which one of these belongs to God? He says, whichever one you choose, but you will have to give him one. I put them in my pocket, put them on the dresser, went in and got some of Mother's Bonami. Some of you don't know what that is, that clean stuff. I got some Bonami, and I took the one coin and I cleaned it till it was bright and shiny. That was going to be God's penny. I went to church the next Sunday. I had the, all the change in my hand. I could hardly wait until Art Barger came in to take up the offering. He'd been clued that I had money because I never had money anyway. And he came down the aisle, right down the aisle. And he stood in front of me and he said, Your tithe, Master Robert, please. 
Ooh, I got a thrill all the way through. Thrill, Robert. And I reached down and I took the nickel. And I put it in the offering. I got a thrill that hit me at the top of the head and ran still all the way through my body. I didn't give what was demanded of me. I gave above and beyond. That has been my theme ever since. I have never missed, as far as I know, an opportunity to give my tithe plus more because it is God's money. End of that story. It didn't fit in here at all, but I had to stick it in some way. Now things are going well. Dad has these children. Everything's fine. And Dad has a little foundational church. I must say 35 people with an outside toilet. Things are not good, but they're better than they were before we came there. And Dad is preaching, and we're learning to grow and live. And Dad says, you're a little fishing son. I said, oh, yeah, Dad was a great fisherman, and I was his buddy. So we got two old cane poles from Uncle Ross. And we got these two cane poles, and we got in the car, and we went out to where the water, which now this is going to tie into the rest of the story, so pick this up, where the water from the river comes into the ocean, and that is called the Coquille River. There is no bridge across the Coquille River. When the river flows out here, that closes off the north completely. The south is wide open, that goes clear down the Oregon coast. And the east is completely open, as far as wind or anything. Now that's important in about two minutes, so pick that up. We are now going fishing. We're going fishing at the mouth of the, Colum- at the, mouth of the Coquille River, and we're excited about it. Do we catch fish? Oh, absolutely, we always did. We caught fish, but before we went down, we had to stop almost a mile upriver and walk down to the jetty where it hit the ocean. It's a long ways. And we had to carry the pole. And when we got there, Dad said, you know, Robert, he called me Robert, because that was my name then. Robert, I've been thinking, there has to be an easier way to get to that place. Because the beach comes out like that, and then back like that, and here's where the jetty is. Up on the top of that rock, I'll bet you there's some way we could come down from there, and we would just be about a block from the jetty. I said, hey, I'm with you. So we got in the car, and we backed out, went around, and we got to an old parking lot there. And there's a dance hall. Dad says, I wonder what's on the other side of the dance hall. So we drove through the dance hall parking lot, and down the back where they took the garbage was a trail. And we went down. He says, can you move that garbage can? Of course I can do it. Dad suggested it. So I moved the garbage can. Dad drove on down past the garbage can, oh, about from here to the parking lot, down on this rocky spot. And he says, come here. So I came around to his side and looking straight down, he says, look, we're almost straight above that jetty. If we can find a trail down here, we're on top of where we want to fish. Well, needless to say, we can find a hole in the ground. And so away we went. And we threw a few rocks out of the way, went around a few bushes, came out on the beach, and we were laughing, and we didn't, we didn't just do that, you know. We did the other thing. <laughs> We nugged each other, and we had our fishing poles, and we had, course of a mile, we have it now within a block and a half from the top of the rock. That comes up later, so don't forget that. Are you bored? You're going to see something here in a minute. We went fishing. When we came out, I said to Dad, 
Will we have to go back up that mountain? Oh, yeah. He said, we'll, just, we'll work our way back up. And we'll kick things around. So we're carrying our fish, fishing pole, moving things around, and we're hanging up a trail up over the rocks on the corner. We go home. We'll have a good fish dinner. That night, the sirens are blowing, and smoke is coming in from the south and from the east. Now we're hearing warnings everywhere. Fire has broken out. They had slicing, burning of leftover where they do their timber work. And the fire from the south down toward Langlois has got loose and it's coming right up the coast, right toward Bandon. Better escape and go back down to Coquille. And people tried to escape back down, but another fire had come in from that direction. And now from the east and from the south, we have two fires converging upon one little town called Bandon, Oregon. And there's no place to go. So the city, everybody there, runs to the ocean. The only thing left. They go to that parking lot next to the dance hall on that side. Everybody goes down. We were along with them. My brother Judson and I, we got up on the church, up on the porch. That's not the word I want. Up on the garage, lean-to garage. And we watched the fire, laughing and saying, look at that, look at that one. About that time, a fireball flew over and hit the junior high school just two blocks away, and it exploded like you'd drop a bomb on it. Humidity, my God, hot. Now, my mother is a talker and a screamer, and she's already told us that we should be in the car and headed for the beach. Dad is saying, no, we'll live it out. He's a low-tempered individual. We'll live it out. And when that thing blew up, my mother said, and she called him Ep. I'm leaving whether you go or not. I'm taking the kids to the beach. I'm here. Well, you know, when mother says a thing, you do it. So we headed for the car. And with a little bit of traffic, we headed out to the parking lot, just near the dance hall. And we got there, and dad said to me, son, help your sister, help your brother, and we'll carry Jim in our arms. We'll go down the hill. We worked our way down to the beach because there was a trail there. Now we're going to have to come over that rocky ridge and back over here to get to the jetty. And he said, let's go over the ridge. It would be a lot safer down there. So over the ridge we go. We get out there. And as we stand there in the, up to that deep in the water, waves are coming. He said, I wish we could go farther out. And I said, so do I. He said, let's do it. And we started moving against the ocean. Miraculously, the waves moved back. We got out there just so far, and Dad said, I'm going to go back. He's talking to my mother, not to me. I'm going to go back and move the car. I think all those cars are going to be destroyed up there by the parking lot. I'm going back, Beulah. She said, Ap, don't you leave me. Don't you leave me. He said, I'm going to leave you. I'm going back. Now, what you do is you dig a hole in the sand. You place your face in that hole. And I will be right back. I know right where you are. Robert, you know where we are. I said, yes, there's the jetty. There's Face Rock. He says, stay right in that column between Face Rock and the jetty. Stay right there, and I'll find you. I said, Dad, I'll be here. And he took off on the chart. He went back to the trail that we had found earlier in that very day. 
pushed some rocks around, and he went up that back trail. About the time he got there, the fire hit the parking lot, and cars begin to explode and burn, horns blowing. Mother is yelling and screaming, yep, come on, you know how wives are at times. She was panicking. And I'm there saying, Mom, he'll be back. Let's get our face down in the sand. And we stayed in the sand. Sure enough, beside the horses and the dogs and the people and everything, here came Dad. He patted me on the head. He said, good job, son. And I got my face in the ground saying, my dad just patted me on the head instead of kicking me in the... I'm, I'm, I like that. He loves me. Are you bored now? Can I finish this? Because if you can, if you can come back a week from tomorrow, I'll come back and no, no, we won't do that. We're in the sand, people coming by, dogs, cats, even mice and rats, everything coming down on the beach. There was no place else to go. It's real dark. It's real smoky. The driftwood on the beach is now on fire, and up on the top, cars are blowing up, horns are honking. People are screaming and milling around. Have you seen my, have you seen my, have you seen my? You can't see it from here to the door. But we're a huddled in the, in the sand behind Face Rock. I wish you were all from that area because you'd say, this cannot be true. You can't get out to Face Rock except on a minus tide. But we were there. Time goes on, we stay, pretty soon dad says, I think we can get up and take a look, we're ready to go back up the hill. We stood because dad said so, and I said to him, dad, what do we do when the tide comes in? We've been there three hours, what do we do when the tide comes in? And this 35-year-old preacher with a family that is in trouble, who's had no Bible school training, who only had a sixth grade education, who dared to believe God that he was God's messenger, stood up and he looked at his family and he raised his hands and he said, Ocean, in the name of God, through Jesus Christ, your creator, don't you come in, Tide, tonight. Now, I know that sounds silly, but I so trusted my dad, I knew the ocean didn't have a chance. <laughs> and we stayed another 40 minutes. And dad said, it's time to go. Son, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can't find that trail. Do you think you can lead the family up that trail? I said, you know I can. He said, you bring the family up. I'll go see if there's still a car up there. Dad was gone. And here I am. Now watch it. Ten years old. Built like a full-grown man. Big man. I said, follow me. I'll show you the way out of here. Mother says, That's what mother talked like. But that's all right. She talked that way many times. I know what she was saying. It's hopeless. It's dead. We're all going to die. I know. And we start back up. And she said, Robert, Robert, do you know where you're going? I lied. I said, oh, yes. Been this way before. I had one time. 
And we worked our way up to that rock, and sure enough, the rock was just like it was earlier when we came back from the fishing trip. It hadn't moved. Of course it hadn't moved. And we started up. She said, you think we can get up that hill? I said, we'll get up the camp. Come on. We kept working back and forth. Judson is there speaking in tongues. and We're doing a great job up the hill. Now, Judson, don't let me down him. He's a great man of God. Great man. But he's built in small in stature. And I was kind of overpowering to him at times. But that was Judson. And he died small, too, so don't, don't feel too bad. We got up to the top of the hill, and there were three cars parked on the top of this rock. Two of them had come in from behind where Dad was. The dance hall was gone. The trees were gone. Over here at the parking lot that we could see was nothing but a solid sheet of fire where the cars that had parked were burning up. I got up there, and Dad said, He is in the car honking the horn. I said, that's Dad's horn. Let's go. And we got up to the car, loaded it, and my mother is saying, Ep, can you get us out of here? Can you get us I said, he'll get us out of here. Relax. Jack and forth, two and three times, he pulled out. And we pulled out into a desolate area that used to be abandoned Oregon. Not a church, not a school, not a house on the whole thing. Completely wiped out. The date, September 26, 1936. I didn't think much about that. We had to make, that we didn't come back to Bandon again. There was nothing to go back to. Dad goes right on with ministry. He was a presbyter, and he helped this one, that one, and pretty soon he's got a church of his own. But the thing that was amazing to me was I never doubted one time that the word of my father to that ocean would change the history of the world. The newspaper, the Portland Oregonian, date September 26, 1936, talks the whole story of the abandoned fire. I have the pictures and the story. The last paragraph was, one of the unique things that happened that night without explanation, the tide never came in in that area of the Pacific. One man of faith, one voice of a prophet, one who dares to say, I defy you, you were made by Almighty God. The same voice that says, fish, come get in the nets. The same voice that dared to declare, it shall not be, still works today for those who dare to believe God and move into things of victory. God is God. Now comes application time. That became my hook in the jaw, no matter what I did from that time on. I knew a man who knew the God that I served. I wanted to be a doctor. I signed up for it and everything. And then that man of God got up on Sunday morning. And he said, God has laid a message on my heart. It's special for somebody. I'm preaching on the man who settled for God's second best. I've never found the scripture. 
I don't know that it's in the Bible. But he preached it. And he preached it into the conscience of this young man to a point that I hit the altar and cried out, Oh God, I'll make a good doctor, but am I settling for something best? I must do better than that. And God says, you're a preacher of the gospel for the rest of your life. Now I'm in high school, and I hear the voice. Now you don't know this. You that are background Pentecostal Assembly of God know that after every sermon, everybody comes forward and kneels at the altar. And we stay there until somebody else gets up, and then we get up at the same time. <laughs> you too, huh? And I knelt beside Viola, pretty little bond. And when she got up, I didn't. And the others got up, I didn't. I'm pouring my heart out to God. Finally, I don't know how long I was there. Now, this is as big in the story as the other one, so keep coming. I don't know how long I was there, but I noticed that everything was quiet. And I'm still weeping before God at the altar. And I got up and sat down on the altar rail. And my dad was sitting right there, waiting for his son. I jumped up and he ran into my arms and I held him. He said, did you hear from God today, son? I said, yes, I did. I'm going to preach the gospel. He said, I know. He said, let me tell you something. You were born in San Jose, California, in October of 1926. You were only four days old. You were born at home when your body drew up with infantile paralysis, now called polio. And we knew there was no hope for you. We lost our first son by the same thing. We knew you couldn't make it. But he says, we called a doctor. We'd never had one before. And the doctor came and said, I have no hope for you. This boy will die, or he'll never be normal. And he said, I reached down into the bassinet. It was the old one that Judson had. And I lifted it up. And I said, not so, God. We birthed him to go into the ministry. Now you either heal him or kill him. And he said, your body's straightened right out. And the doctor says, I want to see this child every six months. My dad says, you won't, he won't need you. The doctor says, I need it. I need to see this baby's miracle. Now, here's the key. He never told me that story the whole time I was growing up. He did not want to prophesy something that I couldn't live up to. He didn't want me to be living somebody else's conviction. He left it alone until that moment. We came home for lunch. I walked in. And I'm weeping, and I fell in my mother's arms, or she's in mine, she's shorter. She's weeping, and she said, did he tell you? I said, he told me. She said, no, did, did Epp tell you what? I said, yeah, he did. She said, I knew that would turn you. I said, I was turned before he told me. We each need our calling from God. We know we need to have somebody else to encourage us, but we don't dare go into the ministry on somebody else's testimony or somebody else's demand. Are you bored? Shall I go ahead? Can I take another 10? How many will give me 10? 10, 20, 
I went into the ministry. First church I went to, little tiny donkey nothing. Previous pastor, no one even talking about. But there was no furniture left in the parsonage, and the piano had been taken out because of the church problems before I got there. So we went without furniture. I can't play the piano, my wife can't play the piano, but we can certainly hum. And we pastored the church. We didn't have telephones. Dad was in the church that he had built up so great. But in that church, and here comes our sour apple, they had a rule that a pastor had to be reinstated every year to be the pastor. And the year came around, it was his 14th year. And he didn't get the vote by two votes because new people had come in. And they didn't want his old-fashioned way of preaching. They wanted an educated man. They did, and they wanted to build a new church. And he says, it's not time to build a new church. We're in the war now. And we are flooded with people because of Maryland Navy Yard. It's not time to build. We'll build after the war. They didn't hear that. And he missed the vote by two votes. When it was over, the board wanted to meet and say, no, Pastor Cornwell, you, you're not leaving because of two votes. He said, that's what the bylaws say. That's the way I will go. I'm sorry, but that's my dad. You might as well know what I inherited it too. If that's what the law says, that's what I do. God's law and man's law. And he resigned. I didn't know any of this. I'm without telephone up in the mountains. I'm working in the sawmill like my dad. I'm pastoring a church like my dad. Things are going good and things are growing and not my dad's. He's still my example. He's still the man who said no to the ocean. He's still the man who said I know that God will take care. This is my image of what a pastor is. And I'm keeping it. And a man comes up from my dad's area, and he said, I heard that you were up here at Cornwall. I said, yeah. He said, I know your dad. I said, do you? He said, wasn't it awful what happened? I said, what happened? Awful. Oh, he said, he got voted out, and he's moved out and gone back to the sawmill in Oregon. I said, how long ago? It's about a month. I had no way to phone. We didn't have phones. But something inside of me died. My Elijah had gone to heaven. My example was gone. My mentor wasn't there anymore. They voted him out, and he went back to the sawmill. I don't know if that means anything to you, but this young man died at that moment as far as my imagery is concerned. I told my wife, go down to the valley, take the car, go visit your folks, take the girl, our daughter. I'm staying right here. I've got to hear from God or I'm no good at all. And she left. And I took my two dogs, Jigs and Flop, and we went out into the woods. About a half mile from the old house, I called one of the deacons or walked up and said to him, I won't be there till I get there. So you can run the church. The way it's running, anybody can run it. It's doing great. 
And I went out into the woods. And I'm walking along, my face is stained with tears. You say, you're sorry for your dad. Oh, I know that. But something else is gone. I didn't have an image to pattern after. Are you hearing me, preachers? Somebody's watching you just that way too. What you are, the way you live, your testimony is going to live in somebody else's life from here on through. You don't have to say a word, just live the word. You don't have to say a word, just live the word. You don't have to walk around and say, I ordain you, I give you this, I give you that. Give yourself to God and they'll give themselves to God through you as an example. I saw a big cedar tree. You know what cedar trees look like? Like a big tent. I crawled underneath it and cleaned out some underneath. Sat down under the big cedar tree. Wept and talked to God. My dogs snuggled up alongside of me for a while. Pretty soon they went out. Pretty soon they came back because I had the only water in the area. They drank well out of the canteen. Too well. And I stayed there. And I stayed there. And I said to God, see that rifle laying there? When they find these old dried bones, there'll be a rifle laying there. Maybe a rusty old barrel. But I won't leave until I hear from you. Until you touch me, God. I'm here. I'll live here. I'll die here. But I won't move until I feel and know you have met me personally. My dad's great. Bible college was marvelous. But I've got to hear from you, God, or I don't know my call at all. After a few days, Jigs home. Flop stayed with me. He was a very smart dog. I ran out of water, so so did he. I didn't move around much. I just laid before God. Wee hours of the morning, somewhere down the line. Kept lost track of the time. Didn't take a watch. I planned to die there, unless God met me. Early in the morning, I awakened to a rustling sound. I was sure animals had come somewhere. I awakened and I looked up. And the whole tree where I was laying under it had come alive, like you'd decorate it with Christmas ornaments. The whole thing had lit up, and a bright light was shining on the tree and down through the tree. And I could look down, and I could see my own reflection on the ground. I was in a fire of some kind. About that time, it hit me who had come to visit me. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords had stepped in on the sea. I don't know how long I stood praising God or how long the dream, vision, experience happened. I don't know. But it was long enough that it completely satisfied me. I'm not working in the image of my Father. I'm working in the call of Almighty God through Jesus Christ. Thank God for my training, but this is so much superior. I'll take the training and put it together under what you've given me right here in this tree. I walked out from under the tree, and the whole tree was still alive. I walked around the tree. It was still wonderful. As I stood there, it was over. 
and the dogs were gone. I picked up my gun and my canteen, it was empty. And I said, now, which direction is the house? I was so disoriented, I had to stand there and I said, which direction is the house? And just like a voice said, turn to your right and go. So I turned to my right and started out, sure enough, the same one that had called me and visited me there, now is directing me there. And as I walk, I look down the road that came down to our house, and here comes my old Pontiac. My wife is behind the wheel, and she pulls up and she said, what happened to you? I said, what? What do you think what happened to me? She said, honey, you're a mess. Haven't you taken a bath? Haven't you eaten? I said, I don't know. I've been under a tree with God. I don't know a thing. She says, let's go in the house. I said, okay. She says, aren't you going to preach this morning? I said, is this Sunday? She said, of course it's Sunday. I said, okay, I'll preach this morning. I got in the tub. We didn't have a shower. She scrubbed my back, and I enjoyed that. She told me how wonderful I was, and I believed her. <laughs> and now we're going to go to church. I says, I have nothing prepared. Now watch out, you're not going to like me here. Always I had my notes right down the line, line upon line. I was a Bible scholar graduate. I knew it all. And I said, I haven't prepared a sermon. And my sweet wife said, honey, you step into that pulpit and you preach your heart. Forty-seven pre people present. Forty-seven total. They'd missed me a couple Sundays, they said. I don't know. And I preached. My God, did I preach. I don't take the notes to the pulpit since. I just walk to the pulpit well prepared. And he preaches. He said, I want to do that. No, don't do that. Take it under your tree. Until he tells you what to do. You be who you are. I have to be who I am. Well, I hope you've listened to me. If you have, you heard me say, if you're going to be in the ministry, you better have a foundation and a goal that you can follow. And once you have it, don't keep it. Pass it on to somebody else. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, Simon Barjona, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say to you, go and tell and do this and do that. And go into all the world and preach the gospel with the authority of the Son of God who proved who he was by his life, his death, and his resurrection. You have that authority in this world today. Oh, but you know how evil it is. No, I'm sorry, I don't know how evil it is. I don't think any new hell, new devils have been hatched. I believe the same old batches around that have been kicked around by the church for years. Take your stand and dare to believe your stand. Take the word and dare to say this is real, this is true. And you may not believe it, but ocean, back up. Amen. You say, well, the society we live in, there's never been a good society for the body of Christ. 
you're the body of Christ. I pray not for the world. I pray for these. The most important people on the face of the earth today are the blood-washed and those who tend the work of the kingdom of God. Father, I speak the truth. I trust it will be accepted, understood, and that you will be the example for all of us. In Christ's name I pray. Thank you.